Suffrix, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. It was brought to you by our good friends at River. River is the best place to stack sats. They've built their own infrastructure. They built their own exchange. They hold Bitcoin on the exchange in 100% reserves in multi-sig cold storage that they built themselves. They don't have any third-party dependencies like Prime Trust or Fortress Trust. They've got all their MTLs themselves. They've built it themselves. It's important. Focus allows you to build cool things, and River has done that. So if you're looking at DCA into Bitcoin, you can do so at River. And if you do DCA, you're not going to pay any fees. They have River Links, which is the best way to gift Bitcoin to people. You decide how much Bitcoin you want to give somebody. You put it in the River Link part of the application or the web browser uh, on River. It creates a link, you text it, you email it, you DM it, you do whatever, you give it to that person, they click it, and they can sweep the funds either to their River account or any wallet of their choice. Go to river.com slash TFTC, sign up for your River account today. You're going to get $5 worth of Bitcoin when you set up an account. River.com slash TFTC. This was also brought to you by our good friends down the hall, Unchained. Unchained is here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model and also build the financial platform of the future, a future built on a Bitcoin standard. Everything they do at Unchained revolves around multi-sig quorums. Their 203 multi-sig vault is a cold storage vault, which allows you to hold Bitcoin in a 203 multi-sig quorum. You hold two keys. Unchained holds one. So it's a collaborative custody model. <coughs> you have full control over your Bitcoin at any given point in time. But if you ever need Unchained to be there, to be the second in the 203 multi-sig quorum, they are there for you. They have a keyless enterprise offering as well. If you don't want to hold your own keys, but you want the benefits of a collaborative custody model, Unchained is paving the way with their keyless enterprise product, which is a multi-institution, two or three multi-sig, where three institutions hold the key, two others outside of Unchained. So you can get that peace of mind of knowing that the keys are distributed, that the funds are auditable, and that you have no single points of failure without having to hold keys yourself. They have an IRA product. If you want to transition your IRA into Bitcoin and you don't want to liquidate that IRA and then buy Bitcoin, you can transition it into a Bitcoin IRA via Unchained where you can hold your own keys as well. A lot of people are getting hot and bothered about the ETF, but as we know, third-party counterparty risk exists and you want to eliminate that. Unchained's Bitcoin IRA product allows you to do that. So go to unchained.com slash consultation. Set up a call with their team to learn about all these products and how to get onboarded. Tell them that TFTC sent you. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Zapparate. New sponsor, Zapparate. If you're out there as a Bitcoiner thinking, how do we how do we get a Bitcoin standard here? How do we get the circular economy stoked? It starts with you. If you're a Bitcoiner running a business, and you're not accepting Bitcoin, what are you doing? It's time to become a Zapparite customer, connect your wallet, and begin accepting Bitcoin. The beauty of Zapparite is that it's wallet agnostic. It allows you to plug in any wallet, on-chain Lightning that you want to, so that you can easily receive Bitcoin for your business. Zapparite just handles the invoicing and accounting behind the scenes. Uh, if you are selling products like books, like Parker is, uh, you can create a Zapparite link, a payment link, so you have a, a sort of reusable link that anybody could click and pay directly to your wallet at the end of the day. If you go to zapright.com slash TFTC, you'll see, see the deal we have. 
uh, you're going to get a $40 reduction on their annual subscription model. Right now, you can pay $25 a month or $240 for the year, which is a 20% reduction from the $25 a month. If you use the code TFTC, you're going to get $40 off that already reduced annual rate. So you pay $200 for a year of ZapRite. Again, if you want to stoke the circular economy, if you're a Bitcoiner, this is the best way to do it. Go to ZapRite, impeccably designed. You only need an email to set up. They never touch your funds. That's the important part here. Again, they're wallet agnostic. You're just connecting your wallets that you control. ZapRite never touches your funds. It's time to start accepting Bitcoin. Oh, another important note, you can connect your fiat rails too. So ZapRite can be your central invoicing software that you send to people and they can decide to pay in fiat or Bitcoin, all handled by ZapRite. Go to ZapRite.com slash TFTC. Use the code TFTC at checkout and you'll get $40 off the $240 annual subscription. This work was also brought to you by good friends at Bitcoin Talent Co. Bitcoin Talent Co. is here building a recruiting firm uh, built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. If you're a company in the space looking to get the best talent in the world into your company to help you build out a Bitcoin standard, the Bitcoin Talent Co. team uh, are a bunch of veterans in the recruiting uh, industry. Andy, co-founder, came from Uber, helped build that company from 100 employees to over 10,000. He knows what he's doing, and he's a Bitcoiner. They understand on-chain Bitcoin, multi-sig, lightning, mining. If you're looking to get the best talent and you're looking for people to partner with that actually know what they're talking about when it comes to Bitcoin, Bitcoin Talent Co. is the only place to go. Go to bitcointalent.co, tell them the TFTC sent you. Likewise, if you're looking to get in the space and you're looking to get on people's radars, uh, looking to get hired at one of the companies building out the Bitcoin standard, go to bitcointalent.co and set up a profile so that you can get in the mix. Tell them the TFTC sent you. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Salt of the Earth. If you're looking to stay hydrated, it's important that you drink more than just water. You need water with electrolytes in it. I've been drinking Salt of the Earth for the last four months, every day now, uh, and it's really created a noticeable difference for me in terms of how I feel throughout the day and how I can recover when I work out because I'm getting jacked. Did you know that, Logan? I'm getting jacked. All thanks to salt of the earth. It helps to recover. It's going to drink saute, drink com slash TFTC, and you'll get 15% off your order. Enjoy this rip. Dickie. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. I'm good for like 90. All right, you're good for 90. Now the freaks know that. We have 90 minutes. We're recording. Harry. <laughs> we were just trying to determine how long it's been since we last sat down here on TFTC to have a, a discussion for, for this audience. Obviously, we've had many conversations outside of TFTC between now and the last time we recorded here, but it's but been too long. Did it really happen if the freaks can't hear it? I don't know. I don't cool. know. Well, luckily, <laughs> I have a puppy. It's Pepper. Pepper. Here, we can get a little 
Oh. What's up, Pepper? You look warm. Yeah. Not a winter dog. Needs a winter outfit. Yeah. Um, so a lot has happened. Big week. I mean, maybe we should start there. It's been a big week. Big seven days. Big week. Big last yeah. couple. Big last couple of months. Grid. Getting through the SPAC process. Finally. Live. In the public markets. We announced last week that you joined 1031 as an advisor. And again, a lot has happened since the last time we recorded in today. I guess let's start there. What has the week been like? And what was the uh, the buildup to the last yeah, couple of months I mean, been? The, the, you know, it's the, it's the old saying, like, you know, there are weeks when a decade happens and decades when, when a week happens. Um, and, you know, for us, you know, we didn't, we didn't start the business expecting to be a public company in 2018. Um, but that's kind of the road that we ended up on, um, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, the reasons why we felt that the public market was the right place for us was, was really just, you know, around sort of our Bitcoin ideology and goals, which is that being able to put shares into lots of people's hands and make them available serves as another vector around getting, you know, Bitcoin and hash rate decentralized on an ownership basis. Um, and also it's obviously a high capital intensive business and, and we're better to do that than in the American public markets. Um, so we're thrilled to be on the other side of the deal. We're thrilled to be NASDAQ listed. Um, and you know, more than anything on my mind is let's get back to work. we got a business to grow. Yeah. Yeah, we all do. It's, and it feels like the timing's perfect a few months before the yeah. having the winds of a potential bull market seem to be blowing in the distance, getting closer. I wake up every day and Bitcoin is more useful than it was the day before. You know, other people are catching on. Um, you know, Pete McCormick and I talked about this a bunch, but like we're sort of at the, you know, the end of the beginning feels like ETF land took us to the end of the beginning or maybe the mm-hmm. beginning of the middle. Um, and that kind of makes sense, right? Like the internet 15 years in, was at the end of the beginning, the big killer apps hadn't sort of emerged, you know, we weren't on 3 billion smartphones yet. But, you know, but all of that was sort of yet to come. And I think, you know, in, in our Bitcoin journey, we're at a similar point where, you know, it's not niche and early anymore. Uh, it might be early in terms of price, but it's not early in terms of, of mind share. Um, you know, Bitcoin's a household name, and it, it's a word that everybody recognizes at this point. Um, you know, for good or for bad, they might have their own, you know, positive or negative association with it, but, you know, but we're not a a shadowy corner of the internet anymore. Um, and that's exciting. No, it really is. And we just had the energy and mining summit in Nashville and which was hyper-focused on the mining industry and where it is in its maturation phase and where it may be going in the future. And since we have you on and, your deep knowledge of the mining sector, particularly here in the United States, I think maybe you don't have to talk about Bitcoin too broadly, let's but hone in on Bitcoin mining as an industry. What has happened over the last two years since we last spoke? Where are we now and where may may we be going uh, in the next two to three years? Yeah, I mean, the 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 really great part about what's happened in Bitcoin mining is that the business model, the size and the scale, all of those uh, types of dynamics have gone through maybe an even more aggressive maturation process than Bitcoin has. You know, we're seeing 
you know, home miners are doing all sorts of new kinds of things. We had a panel about, you know, what we call Citadel mining, which is, you know, everything from one miner in the garage to, you know, one of Steve Barber's hash huts on your property, you know, anything, anything that is sort of the homesteading version of mining. And that panel was, was fascinating, a ton of discussion around process heat um, and other sort of integrated use cases. You know, we've seen, you know, the Senator from Tennessee, both senators from Tennessee actually have engaged really aggressively on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. We had the CEO of TVA at the event, giving what I found to be, you know, truly a profound discussion of where he thinks energy is going and immediately understood that the role of a flexible consumer and the role of the miner is really a catalyst for change and towards the maturation of our electric system. You know, that's not a static thing, right? We didn't, we didn't wake up with the grid that we had 90 years ago. We've, we've been iterating and improving components of that system all along the way. And, and so seeing the translation layer between some of the you know, most senior business experts on the energy side, grokking Bitcoin, you know, basically at face value now, getting him in a room with, with miners. There's a ton of his customers in that room. You know, Grid is one of them, but, but there are many others. Um, and seeing uh, the clarity that incredible energy professionals are viewing the mining sector with um, was hugely refreshing. So, you know, all of that is is super, super encouraging. You know, I think the the other macro topic that needs um, acknowledgement is just that, you know, Bitcoin's, you know, installed hash rate base has gotten escape velocity, right? The whole Bitcoin network is running, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 gigawatts. It's running north of 500 exahash. You know, we're probably sniffing 600 at this point. Um, the ability for the network to go up you know, 10% on a difficulty or a hash rate basis from here, you know, the the base that we're building off of is now so large that each of these incremental components of growth, um, you know, we're just talking really big numbers. Uh, and that's exciting. It means that the security model for Bitcoin is incredibly strong. It means that the value proposition for sound money that can be transacted on a permissionless and censorship resistant basis um, is stronger than ever. And the level of professionalism that I get to see, you know, both within our company, but also across our peers um, is just really high. I'm really I'm really proud to call them, you know, members of the same, you know, the same business community. So I think all of those things are significantly more mature than they were even the last time we had a conversation on the show. Yeah, and it was extremely refreshing uh, the energy and mining summit, uh, the TV, president CEO of the TVA coming really, I was extremely impressed by him. We can't talk about specifics of what was said, but I will say that his presentation and his earnest curiosity was refreshing from somebody in a position of that type of power where you'd expect them just to be a politician, like figurehead of his business and just read the script. Essentially. He was very engaging, uh, and again, genuinely curious, which I was extremely encouraged to find. And then another thing with this whole theme that we're talking about here, it's like one of the questions we get at 1031 quite a bit from prospective investors is, well, like nobody's adopting Bitcoin. Like when are people going to start spending it uh, at the store? When am I, I going to be able to go and buy groceries with Bitcoin? And 
um, you have to answer like, yeah, obviously it's not there and not everybody has Bitcoin, but I think it's important to realize different types of adoption and the order of operations through which we'll get to Bitcoin's end state of full success, which is yes, not everybody's able to spend and receive Bitcoin at the grocery store. However, on the earlier side of the order of operations is this, this mining, this distribution of hash rate, this growth of hash rate and this integration with the energy sector and the energy sector I believe has reached a critical tipping point of adoption that is not recognized by the people who just view Bitcoin adoption as where can I spend it? Who's accepting it? Yeah, I think, you know, Bitcoin, the currency is it's like saying, where can I spend a a barrel of oil or where can I spend a T-bill? Right. Like that's not the metric that I think is meaningful today. I think all of those, you know, transaction based, um, number you know numbers and graphs like all of that matters over a longer time scale for sure but at at the point where we are today you know it's about getting bitcoin onto balance sheets um whether that's household balance sheets or corporate balance sheets or state and government balance sheets you know that's the first um beachhead that bitcoin really is um is crossing and i think you know we 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 got a little bit sort of twisted up in the weeds of it all, you know, earlier on in, you know, in this great shared history of ours, but, you know, the ability to spend Bitcoin is not the same as the ability to send Bitcoin. And, and those are different ideas. Um, and so I think we're climbing the store of value adoption curve incredibly constructively. Um, and so it's, it's great for us to be able to see that. And I think you're exactly right. The market penetration that Bitcoin mining you know, is accomplishing today, you know, along the lowest sort of strata of energy cost sources, you know, whether that's here in the US or it's abroad, you know, the penetration at those low cost, high opportunity points is enormous. Um, you know, if you're if you're not thinking about where does Bitcoin mining represent value accrual, if you're, you know, an intermittent generator, or if you're a steady baseload generator that needs to manage uptime, anybody who cares about power and uptime should be having a conversation with a Bitcoin miner or be thinking about how do I design a rate class that gets Bitcoin miners the prices that they need, which are, you know, transparently the bottom of the barrel. But the trade-off there is that, you know, my, my father, uh, lifelong CFO, would always tell me that in any, any negotiation, you have to pick between price and terms. And I can tell you that on the mining side, we're very firmly in the camp of picking price and taking terms. Um, and that's reared its head in, in the demand response adoption that we've represented already. You know, we do it in, in the TVA version of that reality. The folks in ERCOT are doing that. Uh, and the folks in every power market in the U.S. that has programs that offer, you know, a demand response compensation kind of rate class or tariff, you know, everybody wants that. So you know, the, the really interesting thing is to see um, the ability to deliver on the technical requirements of an actual demand response program, and then the desire to expand those programs to increase reliability and lower costs for the average user. Yeah, and you, just digging into this demand response use case in and of itself, you can already see Bitcoin miners beginning to affect change across different um, 
sort of power providers across the country. ERCOT, obviously, here in Texas, very advanced from the pricing signal perspective. There's APIs that are connecting to mining firmware. That mining firmware is reading the pricing signals and adjusting hash rate uh, with those pricing signals almost immediately. Whereas if you zoom up to the TVA, it's a bit more manual. You get a call from the TVA a day or two before they expect you to turn down during peaks of, or peaks of demand where they need electricity sent back to the grid and you have somebody go and turn down the operation or do that from a, a backend software solution. Um, you can see there, like you can imagine the TVA is looking at ERCOT and be like, oh man, look at how advanced this demand response system is with all these pricing signals. Maybe if we could build an API pricing service like that for the miners up here, we could be much more efficient yeah efficiency is the name of the game right like these are these are assets that are already bought and paid for all the transmission lines are bought and paid for all the substations are bought and paid for and so now that the capex is out the door for all of these electric systems how do we get to a place where utilization is able to climb even just a few percentage points you know because at the end of the day if you think about the you know, I, th I think of sort of the, the, the world in terms of a nexus of contracts. There's a contract that your power provider signs with you, the ratepayer. I'm sitting in my house. I, I you know, use Nashville uh, Electric. And, you know, their commitment to me is really around power availability. So let's say the system gets super stressed and they've got to import power from MISO. Those megawatt hours are incredibly, incredibly expensive. And the price of those megawatt hours would be better, you know, as a as a rebate to their flexible load customers rather than a forced import during the time when things are tightest. Um, and so there's a really uh, compelling economic case around why demand response is accretive, you know, both to the power provider as well as to the individual rate payers at the household level, as well as to the demand response program participants at the industrial scale level. That's a that's found money for everybody involved, right? The power provider is lowering their cost. The rate payer at the household level is raising their uptime and potentially lowering their cost. And the flexible customer is able to lower their costs as well. So it's this incredible, you know, three party positive sum equation that the power providers are able to offer once they've had the introduction of a truly innovative business model you know, which all the, the mining community believes and rightly so that they represent um, with this flexible load type of profile. Um, and, and in addition to that, it's better for the generating assets. You don't want to turn those things up and down, you know, as much as, as you might have to. And so, you know, there's, there's this other uh, net benefit over the longer term as you continue into the useful life for some of these plants, which is that operating in an environment with a flexible customer is actually better for all of the hard assets that are being used to generate the electricity in the first place. So we're, we're in this incredible virtuous cycle uh, as, as symbiotic partners being uh, the, the power provider, the Bitcoin miner, and then the households and businesses that that power provider serves outside of the flexible customer. So I'm, I'm incredibly motivated to keep working on what it means to reinvigorate some of these electric systems in, in a way that that really benefits the entire kind of, uh, you know, nexus of parties. Wait, Harry, where's systemic risk to these systems? Did you not hear what the Department of Energy and the EIA had to say last week? Or... 
I understand that that was an interpretation that was floated to the community. I happen to strongly disagree with that interpretation. You know, I think, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's sort of a, I said this many years ago, but, um, you know, Bitcoin, you know, demonetizes the political class and remonetizes the productive class. And, you know, in, in keeping with that theme, you know, the, the engineers will inherit the earth. Um, and so that means the power engineers that work on these systems, the people with their boots on the ground, you know, there's, uh, I just found this out. I looked at like, what are some of the highest compensated roles that you could have in America? Cause I was just, I was just curious, what are the weird ones I don't know about that, that maybe I should have gone to, to school for. Um, one of them is there's a guy whose job it is, or, or a woman whose job is to hang out of a helicopter on, you know, basically a tether with a chainsaw to manage trees on the high voltage lines, super high up in the air, they make like 400 grand a year. Um, and so those are the people who I think we're building, you know, Bitcoin mining for, because we make all of those roles easier. You know, if that takes an education process uh, in Washington, in order to make that value proposition clear, you know, so be it. But I think that, you know, once you, once you put the hard data, you know, to these folks, um, I think the case for Bitcoin is really uh, quite an obvious one. You know, the ideological challenge that we might face is the the sort of baseline assumption, which is that, you know, nobody likes our pet rock. Um, and, and I think we're really facing more of that perspective than any sort of legitimate concern around electric reliability. Yeah. Bitcoin has no, no value. It's just a Ponzi scheme, a pet rock, if you will. I don't know. It's not helping. Seems anybody. like a lot of market participants who are willing to pay $43,000 a coin right now. Yeah, you, you think they think it's valuable. They're parting dollars to get parting with dollars to get Bitcoin. Uh, but it is like a we discussed this too on our panel uh, the first day of the summit. But it is like you said, we have this sort of pull between the productive class and the unproductive class. The parasitic class is probably more descriptive of what they actually are right now. And it's not just specific to Bitcoin. I mean, we can zoom out and just focus on energy more broadly. Like we talked about the example of, this wasn't on our panel, this was on the What Bitcoin Did episode, the live episode on day one in Germany. It's like over 20 years, they decommissioned, I think 20 gigawatts worth of nuclear power generation, more than doubled their overall capacity, uh, generation capacity over the first 20 years of the century. But they doubled their capacity with wind and solar predominantly turns out uh, the sun doesn't shine that much in Germany and the wind doesn't blow as much as they like it to. And so you had a situation in 2002 where nuclear coal, natural gas were a 86% of the overall generation capacity today. It's something like 34% and Germany's got a systemic energy crisis because they don't have reliable power because they refuse to, for some reason or another, lean into reliable energy sources and say what you will about coal and natural gas and whether or not you think hydrocarbons are here to stay or on the way out. I mean, nuclear is a very obvious answer to a lot of these energy stability problems that the governments of the world seem to be neglecting for some reason or another. You can't, you can't virtue signal your way out of physics, right? It just, you can't. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's just for, you know, for the, the, the climate folks out there, like that's the, that's the bitter pill, right? You're not gonna, you're not gonna build enough wind and solar to solve this 
um, in any kind of meaningful way. And, and, you know, the, 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 the cohort that drives me kind of the craziest are the ones who are, who are staunch climate supporters who believe in the decommissioning of nuclear plants, right? The, these are assets that are fully bought and paid for. They're operating really, really well. They have an incredible safety track record. It's an American technology, nonetheless, that, that we were able to innovate on. And, and you know, the willing, the willing sort of voluntary shutoff of, of these plants, it, it's just, it's despicable. Um, you know, there's, there's really, there's really no argument for it. So, you know, the playbook that we expect to see, and I'm thrilled to say that the Canadian, um, the Canadian folks uh, have, are, are committing to extending useful life at some of their plants. Um, there's folks at OPG who are committed to building SMRs um, and they're, they're going to do that in, in TVA. That's public knowledge. So, you know, we are seeing, you know, in California, we were able to avoid, you know, the shutdown of their nuke that's in, in the uh, in the Los Angeles area. So, you know, so we're we're starting to turn this tide a little bit. But, you know, anytime you got to turn an aircraft carrier, which is, you know, really the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you know, it's it's a it's a challenge. But but, you know, by gosh, we're going to do it. Um, so I think there is some daylight and some hope on this. But, you know, the the argument that we should shutter nuclear plants is like, the single most asinine policy perspective I can think of. That's literally suicidal, <laughs> especially if you're going to virtue signal about transitioning away from hydrocarbons and at the same time which, decommission. Which to, to, to be fair, like we're, we're, we're in favor of building a positive sum electric system. For us, that's meant a huge allocation to hydroelectric assets and raising the revenue profile that they're able to offer. Um, it's uh, it's a huge focus on nuclear, which we love, and and you know and and there's there's really a you can do well and do good at the same time. You don't have to you don't have to not have it both ways. But unless you're investing in the baseload profile of the electric system, you know you're going to create instability and tail risk that that really will um, that really will be you know significantly detrimental at some point down the road. Yes. Oh God, oh, I'm getting triggered. Just thinking of the uh, the LNG export ban or new construct construction of new LNG export facility ban that came out a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's well, nonsensical. And, and you know, and, and let's let's put our let's put our carbon accounting hats on, right? If you're if you're replacing a coal asset with a natural gas asset, y your carbon intensity of that transition is incredibly positive. It just happens to run on another hydrocarbon, but a much better one from the carbon accounting perspective. So I, I think, you know, we, we need to be very, very realistic about the physics. We need to create the demand for these types of flexible load consumers, which means innovating on the contract structure in many of the jurisdictions that are, you know, that are currently not set up to compensate flexible loads as fully as maybe they should be. Um, you know, but these are, these are the tough, you know, the tough questions and the hard steps that have to be taken um and you know environmental stewardship and strong business performance are not at odds with each other we just need you know sane cool engineering heads to come together and design solutions that are that are as future proof as possible um and shuttering nuclear reactors is the lowest thing you could possibly do on that list yeah yeah very malthusian when you think about it but on this tip i mean we had this discussion and it was really interesting to see people from different parts of the world 
come to Nashville to talk about the future of mining and where it may proliferate moving forward. What what are your views? Like obviously the United States, Texas, Tennessee, TVA, even Kentucky, other parts, Georgia have really benefited from the the Chinese mining exodus that happened a, a few years ago, two and a half years ago. Now at this point, rack space is tight. Uh, it seems that Bitcoin in the mind of institutions is now a go. We got the the Black Rocks of the world saying it's a good thing, and what I've been able to glean is that there are people in other parts of the world that are looking at Bitcoin mining specifically and saying, "All right, it's time for us." to develop a strategy, deploy some capital and get some hash rate spinning up within our borders. How do you see this international competition for hash rate playing out moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, to to win in the mining business, you need to have a structural defensible advantage. Um, and that that can come in many forms. I think in America, we've got two great structural advantages, one of which are our capital markets, which are the best in the world. The other is that our energy assets are also world-class. Um, and so what are the two key ingredients to a great mining business is well-capitalized access to energy. Um, and so I think the U.S. you know, has, has taken a leadership role uh, on the heels of the China, on, on the China ban you know, several years ago. Um, I don't expect us to slow down. You know, maybe on a percentage share basis, we're going to lose ground, but I don't think we're going to, you know, I don't think we're going to slow whatsoever. You know, I'm very curious to see what's going to happen in some of these, you know, really sort of oil state, you know, wealth environments where there's obviously a huge amount of, of capital available to them because they've, you know, they've made so much money over the past years and they're starting to look down this diversity path uh, for their portfolios. And, you know, additionally, they've got access to a huge amount of, of incredibly cost-effective generation. Um, you know, the UAE is turning on nuclear reactors and a multi-gigawatt solar plant co-located with them. So, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge uh, opportunity to monetize, you know, via the, the deployment of hash rate. We've seen what Marathon's doing over there. Obviously, we've heard the news out of Oman. We've heard the news, um, you know, in, in, you know, Dubai and elsewhere. So, you know, I think, and then none of that's to say anything about South America, which has been involved in this both, you know, above board and below board. There's sort of a, a gray market environment, you know, historically in Venezuela, we're seeing large scaled operators operating, you know, out of Paraguay now. Um, we're seeing, you know, the Africa trend that gridless is really spearheading take root. So I think, you know, the, the exciting part is that the decentralization of mining, you know, that narrative is very strong because there are structural opportunities to monetize energy in each of these regions. Um, there's an opportunity to, you know, to deploy capital in each of these regions. And there's going to be companies and individuals with a very broad range of risk appetite and operating model appetite to deploy across all of this. And so, you know, all of it, all of it means that, you know, we're, we're probably going to see hash rate go up over time. Yeah. And then you combine this with the fact that you have hydro boxes and, um, uh, liquid cooling immersion systems becoming more advanced and you have the ability for the first time at scale to deploy hash rate in areas of the world like the Middle East where it was simply impossible due to the physical environment, the heat specifically, even down here in Texas yep. to some extent. Like obviously we have a dust. A lot of hash rate here. Sand. A lot of, a lot of heat, a lot of dust. Um but the uh, the industry, the picks and shovels part of the industry building 
these facilities that allow you to mine in harsh environments has reached a point of maturation as well, where it's really going to open up markets that were previously inaccessible, inaccessible. Totally. Yeah. There's, there's a technology trend that sits underneath all of this. And, you know, on the one hand, it's the efficiency. All right. We're still recording. So little, uh, audio troubles there back at it. What were we talking about? Yes. Um, uh, there's, there's two layers of technical innovation that are happening that I think are going to facilitate broader availability of, of deployment environments. One of them is that the chips are getting more efficient. Um, and so that just means the units of energy per units of, of hash rate produced over time, you're able to produce, produce more hashes per unit of energy. The second is all of the technology that's wrapped around that, which includes things like immersion and things like hydro and, and, you know, filtration and all, all the different tools that are available to a mining operator in order to deploy in a harsher environment makes, you know, more sources of generation and more environments available. It means that there's more, you know, economic viability of places that weren't from an operational perspective, but maybe were from a power cost perspective historically. So all of this kind of rolls into the idea, you know, that I think is, is the tailwind that we're all riding, you know, across Bitcoin, which is more decentralization is likely because, you know, more remote operations are, are viable, but then secondarily just the gross hash rate securing the network is going to go up as well. Yeah. Let's, let's lean into the ASIC manufacturers. What are your thoughts on the duopoly, the dominated duopoly by Bitmain? Obviously they've got the S21 series coming to market. Their pricing out of the gate with those machines was very aggressive. Many saw it as an attempt to leverage their economies of scale to box potential competitors out of the market. Micro BT is a, obviously the second largest player in the market and they have a lot of happy customers. How do you see this playing out moving into the future? Does Bitmain just use their economies of scale to box people out? Is micro BT beginning to make inroads with larger customers? Do we see an Intel come back to the market? Avalon, do any of these companies have a chance of competing? Um, I, look, I think I think that we're still early days. I think that you know the manufacturing landscape could change dramatically over time. Um, you know, I think right now Bitmain is sort of winning the day as they have been for the last couple of years. I think MicroBT is doing a great job. Um, the MicroBT units, you know, are awesome. Um, they continue to double down on on reliability and performance at the cost of some nominal efficiency, which I think has been you know a great strategy from them. Um, you know, you've obviously seen Riot roll into market with um, uh, a huge amount of, uh, of future order. And so I think that, you know, MicroBT is certainly earning their scaled volumes as well. You know, do I think the duopoly is going to break in the next year? Not particularly. Do I hope that more competitive players enter the market? Always, right? I always want a more competitive market to be able to look at when I think about, um, you know, capital allocation and hash allocation. Um, but I think that, you know, right now things, you know, are, are, you know, reasonably healthy and competitive. You know, what we're not seeing this cycle is, is kind of the price blowout that we saw in 2021 um, with units trading, you know, significantly ahead of, of kind of, you know, the future revenue profile. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're certainly healthier than we were a few years ago, but I'd always love to see additional players enter. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would agree there. Yeah. Um, it is crazy how efficient these machines are getting to it. And I'm just thinking through my mind, like the whole concept of ASIC commodification, like is that simply a natural catalyst for more competition when you get to a level where you can make an investment, a capital outlay in, in building an ASIC because you're confident that it's not going to make a step function efficiency improvement like the, the ASICs have in the past? Or does that simply allow the incumbents to just really dominate the market um yet to be seen but yeah yeah i think you know the, the good news is is they don't let me program any of the chips <laughs> um, at, at least at least not yet and if they do we have real problems um so you know i think i think there's i think there's sort of the mad scientists and, and deep technical experts that are working on it you know i got to spend some time with scott from um from oh good lord i've lost the name of his project uh, but he's doing the open source ASIC project. Um, not Futurebit. Futurebit? Not, no, they're not open source. Hold on. I can find this. Um, he, yeah, so so he's working on some open source pieces. You know, I don't think transparently that it's, um, that it is any, uh, Bitax. I apologize, Scott. Um, you know, it's just cool to see people working on stuff and tinkering and, and innovating along this. You know, we, we aren't at the mature phase for this industry. You know, we don't have the, you know, we don't have the, the, you know, the, the Intel chip or the, or the HP, you know, you know, chip is an Intel chip that's in all of those units, but we haven't reached the full commodification layer. We might be at what I view as a, a long local maximum, which is really sort of the duopoly continuing to innovate. Um, but we may see, you know, another really interesting, you know, breakthrough from a market dynamics perspective, um, that attracts additional folks who want to build down this development path. Um, you know, but unlike software, you don't get to put a software release out every two weeks. You know, it's really, uh, you know, six, 12, 18 month type of time scale to be able to innovate on hardware. Um, and so, you know, I'm very curious to see what emerges, you know, really over the coming decade, if I'm being honest about timeline. Yeah. The hash wars are upon us. Who knows? You can, this could be always has been. They have been since January third, two thousand nine. Then you have just external factors, geopolitical risk. Who knows what happens in Taiwan with TSMC? Can they spin up a foundry here in the United States fast enough to um, deter any systemic political risks that would come if China were to do something there? Um, then even then. Many people are like TSMC is one of the greatest revenue drivers within Taiwan. So to think that China would just come and prevent that company from uh, accruing tax revenues by selling their goods to market um, is a bit crazy as well. But these are unknowns that that can affect the market. It's crazy to think the the range of effects. So while we were in Nashville, the weather was affecting Bitcoin hash rate. Um, yeah. Cold weather down south produce a negative 4% difficulty adjustment, 3.9% due to everybody engaging demand response. And that's why, I mean, I'm sure I know that you feel this way too. It's just, I don't think there's a more exciting industry to be in than Bitcoin mining right now because of all these different variables you have to think about. It's certainly very masochistic as well, but it's never boring. And, and it's honest. Right. Like what I love most about mining is that, you know, I can't make my terahash hour, you know, I'm, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to outsell 
my, you know, competitor for the next software sales deal and, you know, sell $9 a, a seat for, you know, you know, 12 months, uh, you know, because I've got a better, you know, CRM product in market, right? Like, no, it's a, it's a pure, honest capitalist <laughs> endeavor to be able to generate hashes more efficiently than the next person. Um, and, and that's, that's a really refreshing environment to build a company into um, because you can see on a daily basis, if you're doing it the right way, you get a report card, you know, on a very, very frequent basis, which is fun um, and, and is very, very motivating. So I love that part of it. Um, I agree with you there, you know, there's no sector that, you know, I'd be more excited to be working in. It'll be my five-year anniversary at Grid Next Week. Uh, official start date anniversary. I was wrapping a consulting agreement um, before I joined. So I really started, you know, three or four months before that. But, um, you know, but there, you know, th this is what I've chosen to dedicate my life to, um, to building, you know, within within a proof of work system um, and really couldn't be couldn't be happier to get to work on this every day. Yeah. God, there's many routes I want to take this on. I, I guess since this is a mining focused podcast, obviously the having. It's about 75 days away, which is not that much time. What should miners be doing? What are miners doing to prepare for the having? How may it affect mining businesses? Well, you know, the, the, the known effect is that the block subsidy is going to get cut in half. Um, I, you know, it's, it's bittersweet, right? Like on the one hand, you know, we're going to earn less Bitcoin as miners unless fees do something quite dramatic. Um, than we did the day before the having happens or the, or the block before the having happens as the case really is, you know, but the, that's the bitter, but the sweet is that Bitcoin's monetary policy gets proven every four years. Um, so every 210,000 blocks, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin fed meets and agrees on a new issuance decision. And that issuance decision happens, you know, programmatically, um, and so being able to watch the monetary policy happen in real time um, and with uh, and with, you know, near absolute certainty is one of the most high impact pieces of how Bitcoin works um, and getting to see it work in real time uh, is, is, you know, is, is a powerful and meaningful thing um, that, you know, there, that, that's my that's my ideological answer. But. You know, tactically, I think we've seen a lot of miners across the industry start to roll into higher efficiency machines. I think that's one way to sort of having proof your, you know, your operation is to continue to, to invest into the fleet's efficiency. Um, beyond that, you know, we, we at least think all the time about, you know, the best way to be prepared for the having is to be cost conscious. And that starts with the power cost, but it, it really rolls across everything the business spends money on. Um, and so being, you know, laser focused on downside risk and cost is the best tool, you know, available in conjunction with, with, you know, managing the fleet's efficiency in order to be resilient across a reduction in potential revenue. Um, now the purchasing power under the last epoch was greater from a mining revenue perspective than, you know, the purchasing power in the 12.5 Bitcoin block epoch. And so, you know, we may see a similar dynamic play out across the four years after 75 days from now. So, you know, I think there's there's still a lot of, you know, dynamic components of the market. We haven't even gotten into the expected fee revenues. 
that we might see with additional adoption um, or additional JPEG degeneracy. Uh, <laughs> however, however you however you might however you might think of it. Um, but at the end of the day, block space is scarce, and Bitcoin is an incredible asset to move from point A to point B. Um, and so the fees that, that folks are willing to pay to move their UTXO, uh, I think is a place where, you know, a huge amount of, of value is provided by miners securing the movement, um, and the availability of that scarce block space. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a simple topic because the monetary policy is dead simple. Thanks to Satoshi, uh, not Craig. And, and it's also a very complex um, business operating environment because there's a bunch of moving variables. So it really is a three-body problem between fees, Bitcoin price, um, and network hash rate. So you're, you're, you're managing a lot of uncertainty around that period of time. But, you know, we pride ourselves to sort of always be having. Um, and so, you know, we'll start preparing for the having after this one the moment this one happens. Always be having. Sage advice. That is the environment leading up to this having is different than uh, the two that I've been a part of since I've been following Bitcoin because you have this fee pressure from the JPEGs and all that and it's nothing too crazy right now but it did get crazier a, a little under a year ago and at times throughout the last year it did provide significant revenues to mining operations the price is up 150% um, since January of last year, and it seems like we're hovering in the low 40s. The GBTC bleeding seems to be coming to a slow, and the ETFs seem to be net buyers of Bitcoin uh, right now, potentially into the future. Like, is there a situation where fees are pumping, the price is doing really well, the halving comes, and you have the situation where it's not as, I don't think cataclysmic is the right word, but it's not as uh, it's not an event that's detrimental to as many operations as it has been in the past. Something that people should be thinking about. Yeah. I mean, look, like we, we had, we basically had two halvings last time because we saw price go from whatever, 6,500 to 3,500 a month and a half before the halving. And then we bounce back up and then we have, so, you know, you can, you can kind of get to having economics multiple different ways. Um, and so if you're not built to be resilient across those different cycles, it's going to be challenging regardless of if it means price getting cut in half or block subsidy getting it cut in half. You know, it, it, it's kind of all the same, you know, the same net net from, you know, the miners perspective. So, you know, it, it's, it's going to be dynamic. It's going to be interesting. There's going to be a lot of conversation around it. Um, it's critical to remember that it is beautiful to watch Bitcoin's monetary policy happen algorithmically without, you know, without a central, you know, a central planner involved. Um, and, you know, and, and it's about, it's about, you know, survival and, and putting yourself in an, in a position to be able to thrive, you know, during periods of really constructive mining economics. Yeah. First having where Bitcoin stock to flow will be higher than golds. wonder if that's some emetic force. Red dot, blue dot, green dot. Is that the, uh, is that the one stat they're like oh people plan b it's the plan b dots yes we're going all the way up to orange Uh, red dot no but is this something as simple as oh people are like wait a second bitcoin is now officially more scarce than gold from a supply inflation rate that people are like oh man maybe i should get this there's 2024 is 
an interesting year. Another beautiful thing of the having is they line up perfectly with U.S. presidential election cycles in this one. For now, unless we have a lot of accelerating or decelerating difficulty adjustments, we could fall out of whack, but I don't think we are likely to. No. And that and this will be, I mean, we don't like to get political too much on this show, but this seems like it could be a pivotal election for uh, the Bitcoin industry broadly, but specifically the mining industry. It seems like, again, the actions from EIA last week were dictated down from Elizabeth Warren in a certain capacity. And it seems like this current administration really does not like Bitcoin. And I, I think that's what a lot of people are asking themselves behind closed doors is, damn, like, do we need a new administration to just let this industry run? And then you think back to Trump's first term. If it does turn out to be Trump versus Biden, which seems like that is the case, I mean, he wasn't really uh, supportive of Bitcoin either. He had Steve Munchen as his treasury secretary who hated Bitcoin. Um, Trump explicitly said that Bitcoin was a threat to the U.S. dollar reserve system. And so even though we don't like uh, having to deal with the political part of life here in the United States as an industry, I think it is becoming abundantly clear that we do have to play the game to some extent just so that they will leave us alone as much as possible. My, yeah, I, I'm with you. You know, politics is definitely not my bag. Um, but, you know, the, the, the goal that I have, I'm always happy to engage with anyone and everyone uh, on this stuff, you know, and, and all I want to do is, is, you know, tell them, don't ask me the questions, ask the people we buy the power from, what do we do for the community? Are we good? Are we net benefit? Are, you know, are we an asset? Um, I'll never forget the, you know, we had a quote from one of the CEOs of the local utility that we, you know, have an operation at, and it was right when inflation was, was peaking at 10%. Um, and he called us and he said, you know, when this kind of stuff happens, I'm really left with a couple of choices. I can sell bonds, raise debt. I can raise rates. I can lower quality of service, or I can go find a Bitcoin miner to bring to my area. Those are the only ways that he had in his mind to fight inflation. Uh, and he said of those four options, he would vastly, vastly prefer option four, where there's a differentiated customer that he can recruit to sell power to. Um, and so it's telling stories like that as many times as we need to, to make people understand that, you know, we're not parasites that are, that are, you know, suckling on the lifeblood of the American electric system and the economy. We're an asset that pays revenue and that generates, you know, flexible, sustainable load that is an asset to every electric system that we enter. So long as the contracts are structured the right way. And so what that means for us is we, we just want more flexibility and more credit, um, both financial and social and political, uh, for the flexibility that we offer. Um, and I don't think that's an unreasonable perspective to take. Uh, and we're definitely seeing, you know, a lot of, um, of serious consideration around that value proposition taken up by the technocrats who run the actual, you know, generation transmission and delivery services that keep all of our lights on. Yeah. Sometimes you have to take a step back because it's so obvious to us. It's like, how do you not see this? <laughs> do you want to see this? Well, yeah. Marty, how do you manufacture a pencil? 
it takes many moving parts. Really. No idea. I have no idea. When I go pick up a pencil, I have no idea how that was made. I assume that the vast majority of people I will ever talk to have the same level of understanding of how the manufacturing process for a pencil works that I, that, that they do with what happens when you turn the light switch on. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's an unknown thing. You know, no, you know, I, you know, my, my dad believes that he's reducing, you know, the, 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 the carbon intensity of our household by turning the thermostat down a degree or two in the summer or in the winter. Right. So like the level of understanding and the level of, of trend, you know, transparency, you know, and he doesn't think that way anymore because I've, you know, locked him in a room and, and yelled about it long enough. Um, but you know, but these are, these are topics that are not taught to us as young people. They're, they're topics that are wildly esoteric for the vast majority of people, you know, certainly in America, if not on planet earth, nobody knows what happens or why their light switch works. And so that's the, that's the fight that I, that I'm excited to take on, which is, I don't believe that the, look, I didn't go to school for electrical engineering. I went to school for Keynesian economics and I somehow shook loose of that, uh, of that horrible fate. And, and so if I can learn how the electric system works, I have no technical background whatsoever, but I read a bunch of books and asked a lot of dumb questions and, and arrived at something approximating a level one understanding of how electricity works in America. It, it isn't that hard. No, that I seriously have been thinking about this recently. Like we need in terms of curriculum, like people should know how money works and people should know how energy works. Like that should be high school classes, mandatory, know how your money works, know how your energy systems work because they are the best base layer of the economy that you're going to go out in the world and try to be productive in <laughs> and the fact you, that I, I, I swear I didn't set you up for this, but, uh, but grid's mission statement is to, to build a generational company at the intersection of energy and money. Yeah. It's that's our goal. Our goal is to build a company that sits right on that street corner, energy going this way, money going that way, right on the corner is grid and Bitcoin mining. Yeah. It's happening. It's going to be a long journey. Not for grid, but young just for all of us. We're still young men. Uh, you see this hairline? It's uh, it's not getting any. It's not coming it's down. Better than LeBron's. Closer to my eyebrows. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, one other topic I want to talk about with the emergence of the ETFs. How do you think that affects stocks like MicroStrategy and public mining stocks that have historically been used as uh, a way to get exposure to Bitcoin without direct exposure via public markets? Um, I mean, look, I think that, I think that we saw, we have evidence now, right? We saw the ETF come out and we saw a bunch of those stocks, especially MicroStrategy go down. I think MicroStrategy was viewed basically as a holding company for Bitcoin. Um, now they deserve some premium because they're able to lever into some Bitcoin. Um, you know, and I, I love, I forget who did this analysis, uh, on, on X.com, but, uh, they basically looked at the, you know, the sats per share that you own if you own, you know, stock in MicroStrategy and that number actually goes up based on the way that, that they've issued new stock, uh, and bought Bitcoin with it. So I think there's, there's some interesting sort of deeper fundamental analysis that's going to go into the decision to own, you know, a stock like MicroStrategy versus a share of, of, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the Bitwise folks. We like BitV and we like, 
you know, the ARC folks and, and have relationships across there. But I love that they're funding developers out of those management fees. Um, and, you know, I think we've seen, you know, we've seen the premium come out of MicroStrategies to a large degree and enter, you know, ETF land. Um, I think the miners are a, a more interesting case and, and I, I just look at them broadly, but I think it's an opera, it's an opportunity for differentiation, right? You're, you're taking sort of some of the market beta into a different vehicle, but maybe that means there's more room for the market alpha for a differentiated operator to, you know, to really show their chops, um, or many of them to show different chops. You know, there, there's a lot of different kind of operating models across the different pub codes that are out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an opportunity to demonstrate differentiation and, you know, attract people to those names or explain to people why, you know, being able to generate revenue in Bitcoin terms and, and do so on a profitable or highly profitable basis is a compelling equity investment. Um, and so maybe they can get looked at more like companies and less like Bitcoin, you know, holding companies. Yes, I completely agree, which is good for the market too. That particularly the differentiation that's going to be necessary to set yourself apart in the world of public markets. Um, underclocking strategies, uh, getting more ingrained with demand response systems, becoming energy providers, maybe getting acquired by an energy provider, becoming part of that stack. Um, people are going to have to get creative, which should be a forcing function for a more efficient mining industry. And, a more healthy Bitcoin overall at the end of the day. And, and a, a more, and a more fulfilled investment community, right? Like I, you know, I think there's a lot of sort of, well, is the ETF like bad for Bitcoin? I'm like, I don't know. I like when people have an, an access to more choices, right? At the end of the day, like, I don't know somebody's personal situation and maybe the ETF is the most, you know, obvious and greatest thing in the world for them. Um, it's not how I would, choose to get exposure to Bitcoin, you know, for me, because I can't, you know, engage in, in, you know, the self-sovereign component of it, but, you know, but I'm sure there's lots of people out there who that's a much more constructive product and they want the price exposure to Bitcoin and that's really meaningful for them. And that's great. Um, so I think anytime that, that, you know, the market's able to make better, more informed and broader choices across, you know, a broader range of vehicles, like, I think that's net positive um, and is in keeping with sort of the, the you know, the, the libertarian on my shoulder, which says that, you know, people deserve more choices and, and more freedom to choose. And that's positive. And then ultimately, the market um, over time will, will, you know, move away from being a voting machine and moving back towards a weighing machine. Uh, and, and, you know, that and that's where sort of the, the truth gets to be, um, you know, litigated, which is which is in the market for ideas first and in the market for, you know, for financial outcomes second. Yeah. Which is a perfect segue into uh, what we can end it on, which is the fact that you joined 1031 as an advisor as well. We've been talking behind the scenes for gosh, feels like years now, but it's official. It has official. been years. <laughs> can confirm. It's official now. And that is our, our goal, our aim, our mission is to go out and find the entrepreneurs that are building out the critical Bitcoin infrastructure that will lead us to a Bitcoin standard, make it easier for people to access Bitcoin, to use Bitcoin, to leverage Bitcoin, to mine Bitcoin, whatever it may be, and to give the market more options at the end of the day. And we're extremely excited to officially have you on board. And I think 
the opportunity that lays before us at 1031 specifically is extremely exciting as well. I said mining is the most exciting industry, and I truly believe that. Um, but having the luxury of getting a view into every other sector of the Bitcoin economy is extremely rewarding as well. And couldn't be happier to have you on board um, to advise I us. I couldn't as be we... happier. <laughs> I couldn't be happy. No, I, I think, you know, any any time you get to work with a market leader, um, you take it, right? You guys have done have done so much hard work. You know, John, Jonathan, Grant, you know, Odell and you obviously, um, as well as as well as all the LPs, you know, have just done a phenomenal job putting together a really thoughtful and mature, you know, investment platform. Obviously, that's skewed significantly towards venture thus far, because I think, you know, Bitcoin is still in in venture land where, you know, the, the biggest companies are, are being built or yet to be built. Um, they haven't, you know, they haven't reached maturation by any stretch. Um, you know, thrilled to obviously be a portfolio company at Grid, but but for me, like what's most exciting is getting to work with, um, it's just to work with founders, right? The the startup journey is um, not like anything, you know, no, nobody, nobody could have told me what it was gonna be like on the way in. Um, and we're not done yet by any stretch, obviously. So getting to share, you know, the hard lessons, the good lessons, you know, what did we do right? What did we do wrong from along the way with other founders and being able to kind of take the, the, you know, the, the, the long, the long, dark night of the soul type of call, you know, that, that's what was really exciting to me because it, it, it's really hard and, and be, you know, being, you know, founder or co-founder of, of an early stage company um, can be extremely isolating. And so having some, you know, folks in the been there, done that club, who can sit alongside you and, and hold your hand when, when you're facing kind of the, the toughest pieces. That's so, so exciting to me getting to work with you guys on, you know, on fundraising uh, and on, and on allocations, like all of that kind of stuff is something that, you know, that I'm tremendously passionate about along with, you know, working directly with founders. Um, so, you know, couldn't, couldn't be happier. Couldn't be a more symbiotic relationship, you know, between grid and 1031 and between me and 1031. So th thrilled to be here. Yeah, and I, th I think that's another thing that is really unique about the position that we're in, just as Bitcoiners more broadly, but 1031 specifically is, yes, we're a venture fund, the portfolio portfolio of companies that we've allocated to. Um, but in your incumbent venture space, it's usually spray and pray across many different verticals, many different um, subsectors of companies doing wildly different things but with the focus that we have at 1031 on bitcoin specifically it enables us to sort of enable the portfolio companies to help each other out where they can and to give that advice um, obviously very small industry right now but we have a very large goal and very similar problems i mean um, last year at our bear claw portfolio retreat i mean the topic of the year was banking relationships and that's something that uh, bitcoin companies have been targeted um, whether it's explicit or implicit is for for others to determine but wasn't isn't easy still for many companies to get banking banking relationships in the space and just having a focus and being able to have this cross pollination of ideas and experiences among portfolio companies is something that um, I think is unique to what we're doing here. The the other th and this is kitschy, but I'll say it anyway, which is like 
Bitcoin is a social hack where when I meet other Bitcoiners, I'm like 90% of the way towards friends. When I meet other Bitcoin entrepreneurs, I'm like 97% of the way <laughs> towards friends. So, you know, be, you know, being able to kind of self-select into a group of people who are, um, convicted enough to be, you know, to be Bitcoiners in the first place, but then convicted enough to build companies around Bitcoin. It's just rarefied air. Um, whether you're a portfolio company at 1031 or not, I, I just think, you know, the, the founders and employees at Bitcoin companies, um, are a pretty special breed and, and it's just, it's just the most, the most gratifying thing to get to be around those kinds of people all the time. You gotta be a little crazy, which is good. I like crazy. It's, uh, you No. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You couldn't tell. <laughs> That is, it is, this was it is. this was a Marty Jones free episode. I, I I've got the white collared shirt on. You, you got the button down on. I've got the button down on. I've got two buttons on unbuttoned here. Getting a little loose, but that's it. It's Monday morning. It's Monday afternoon now. Uh, the morning flew by. Yeah, today ran away. Keep, keeping Marty Jones in the cage for this one. <laughs> uh, what haven't we talked about? That's on top of your mind. I think maybe we should cover doesn't have to be mining related. It could be Bitcoin related. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think this is, this is a good kind of time to remember that, you know, lower your time preference. Bitcoin comes at you super fast. And so cherish these days of like quiet in the markets, you know, you know, it's great to be bouncing between 38 K and 45 K or, you know, 42 and 43. Like these are, these are calm waters that we're in right now um, and they won't stay calm forever. So, you know, cher cherish the, cherish the, the peace of mind that you get, you know, on these kinds of days. And, and, you know, remember that Bitcoin is um, the longest game we've ever gotten to play. Yeah. It gets crazy when the price starts yeah. starting. Focus. Yeah. Productivity okay. down, price up. Well, anybody out there building a company, just humbly stacking sats, just prepare for the distractions, mentally prepare, especially if you're running a company, let your employees know, let your team know things are going to get crazy. You're going to get the pull of distraction pulling you day in and day out as we're getting large green candles, large red candles up and to the right, um, buckle down and try to focus, anticipate mm -hmm. Exactly. When it comes, because we got a, we got a lot to build. We've got a lot to build. Harry, the future won't build itself. It's not. It takes individuals like you and you, many other people out there. We're doing it though. We're winning. We got people working out here in the Commons, working hard. You're in Nashville. The park is full. The park You're is not full. there, but I was on a call with somebody earlier at the park, and I saw it was full. Um, we're doing it. I went in there. I went in there. Um, I had I had to do a little bit of stuff last night. I got I got to the park at like eight o'clock, and there were like six cars there, and there were like two conference rooms lit up. People were working. Like the state of our network is strong. This is what winning looks like. It's Bitcoiners who can't sleep on a Sunday and have to grind on their next whether it's their next release or their next slide deck prep or whatever. Like they're grinding. And our enemies aren't. And so we're going to outwork them. The momentum is building. It's going to be a good year. Harry, a good year. thank you for joining me. 
we can't wait two years for the next episode. That is uh, too long, no. sir. We'll, we'll, we'll put it on the calendar. Less than two years. Yes, less than two years. You heard it here first. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Dickie.